From Cleveland, Ohio, this is the Cleveland Stage Podcast, brought to you by Fog Properties. Flexible spaces, all the right places. Visit FOGG.com for information. And now, your hosts, Tyler Whitten and Ian Wolfgang Hins. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cleveland Stage Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tyler Whitten, along with my co-host, Ian Hens. And we're here today with our friends from Case Western University's graduate nursing program, Justin Kilduff and Misha Singh. Uh, these two were our guests of honor in our, one of our final performances of Angels in America Part 1, and they came in to discuss with our audiences uh, the great work that they are doing in regards to the LGBTQ community, as well as uh, HIV AIDS awareness, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean that and is had, definitely a big part of what we do. And we had, yeah, we had like we had a great discussion yeah. uh, during that, I guess, audience talkback. Yeah. Um, the cast was certainly enthralled. I was enthralled. You guys gave us a lot of information that we didn't even know, mm-hmm. especially in terms of the advances that have been, that have been made in AIDS testing. Mm-hmm. And I think middle, Ian and I both kind of looked at each other like in the middle of the interview, and we just kind of gave each other the eye thing, like, we should get them on the podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, well, I, I learned so much uh, new information. We had uh, produced The Normal Heart mm-hmm. uh, back in well, about four, four or five years ago now, I want to yeah. say. And uh, I was kind of blown away by the advances that had been made at that, at that juncture five, right. five years ago. Right. And... So much has happened in that five years, and I don't know why. In my mind, I just thought everything just stayed the same, and nobody else was working. Right? They, they for... just like all the scientists were like, that's "We're like, good, we're good I think now, we got it, it's fine." <laughs> but for some reason, even you know, that's that's kind of what happened. I thought I was just blown away by how much has changed and how right. much progress has mm-hmm. actually been made in those five years. Right. It's been great. So why don't uh, Misha, if you can start us off, just talk a little bit about what you do, what your focus is on, um, and things like that, and then Justin will move on to you as well. Sweet. Sure. So um, my name is Misha, and I'm I am a student right now. So I'm actually from California. I moved here for graduate school, um, but I've been involved in women's health and specifically like queer health services, mental health, a lot of different worlds. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, right now, I work at a women's clinic in Shaker Heights. Actually, an abortion clinic. It's called Preterm. And I provide women's health services. I also am involved in queer health services. We're trying to expand that. So HIV and AIDS awareness and testing is a big part of my everyday work. Um, I also do sex education at a juvenile detention center downtown. So I work with a lot of young people that are incarcerated around the ages of like 10 to 22. Now, are these areas that uh, maybe you were planning on focusing on before you got here? Or is this part of the program that you're in? These are all just things that I do outside of oh, okay. school. Yeah, just because I know that that's the, the place that I want to work as a nurse and nurse practitioner, definitely working with women and people across the LGBTQ community. Great. So it's, and how is that working out here in Cleveland? I mean, how did you find the avenues for those, for that sort of uh, work that you're doing? Was it hard yeah. to find? Was there enough? Do you find like it's lacking? That's a great question. So coming from the San Francisco area, definitely like the rhetoric around access for things like abortion and the language around being queer is super different than in Mm. in Cleveland, Ohio, and just the greater Cleveland area. Um, But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist here. There are spaces here. They're just... um, fewer of them but the ones that are that do exist here are very strong so i was able to find spaces that i could contribute to it was definitely really hard it took me about like 
I would say four to six months, the oh. first part of my time here to really figure out how to get involved and help out in that way. Great. And it's been going well since then. So far? Yeah. <laughs> I hope they so. They haven't kicked you out yet. Not yet. <laughs> no. And Justin, what about you? What, what, what uh, work are you doing? So, I mean, we're both in the um, graduate nursing program at Case Western, so we get to work with a lot of different populations. Just regular clinical rotations will be done um, this May, uh, but through the school, I actually got an opportunity to be the clinical coordinator at a student-run health clinic, and this is through Circle Health Services, and it's right in University Circle, and um, we do a free clinic. It's a walk-in clinic uh, bi-monthly, so every other Saturday, second and fourth Saturday, unless there's a holiday, um, you can just walk in and uh, we do a lot of work physicals, um, but uh, the thing that we really see the most of is STD screening. So we do HIV testing, we do a lot of education, we do a full STD panel, um, we treat for STDs, and a big chunk of it, we do, uh, what makes the clinic so great is that we... Um, uh, provide a lot of social services. So there are social workers uh, there that will set you up with health insurance. If you don't have health insurance, they can set you up with housing, behavioral health referrals. Um, so a big portion of our population are coming to the free clinic because they don't have health care. Uh, some people drive from really far away. So uh, we see a really uh, a population that really has a great need um, for some support. And um, anyway, SCD screenings is one of the m most common things that we see there and educate people on. So, And that was one of the things that we talked about after Angels, right? And especially in terms, um, two Angels in America, which of course focuses on the rise of AIDS in the mid 80s. Uh, talk a little bit about the testing that you do um, and the advanced, what is it called? You call it's it a rapid, rapid, rapid test, um, and it is a blood test, so you do get your results within 20 minutes, um, and there is a window uh, period in which, you know, testing uh, isn't as reliable, and generally, there are different types of tests with different window periods, but a good marker for everyone to just keep in their mind is about a month after an exposure is generally with the tests that are on the market, the rapid tests that are on the market. A month after an exposure risk is the earliest that like 95% of the population would show mm -hmm. results. They'll have enough of a viral load from the virus within four weeks to show uh, results, about 95% of the population would show uh, you know, positive result if they were positive after about four weeks. So that's a great benchmark. In reality, if you have, uh, I think there are fourth generation tests, antibody antigen tests, I think you it, the window actually decreases to about two weeks, but I'm still mm -hmm. going to emphasize four weeks. Mm -hmm. the, you know, There's also the recommendation that after you get tested, after that four weeks, you still should come back and get tested within three months mm -hmm. because there are outliers and, and you know, there are people who can show negative results um, within a three-month period and then test positive, and they could have been carrying that entire time. So it has mm -hmm. to do with your uh, you know, immune response to it and how big of a viral load is in your body, and that's what they're looking for. With all these rapid tests, though, I will also point out that um, you know, even if you get a positive result, you will go through further testing to confirm. So that's something to remember as well with rapid tests, that if you do get a positive, that leads to more testing to confirm that you are, in fact, positive. This is going to sound really... Um idiotic but it sounds like what they do with pregnancy tests right like my wife would take the pee test at home and tell me she's pregnant i'd be like no you're not those things are not reliable go and keep getting tested and they keep doing that mm -hmm. um i know it's obviously not in the same plane as aids 
But that's just what I was thinking of. So mm-hmm. that did sound idiotic. No, no, it doesn't. I think it sounds... But I will tell you one thing that I've learned from one of the doctors at my clinic. Those dollar store pregnancy tests are actually highly reliable. <laughs> they're um, more accurate. Tyler has they're, found they're, out now that he has... They're yeah. actually kids. more accurate <laughs> yeah. than... They're more sensitive for a reason because if you're out in the world and you don't know your status, they really want you to make sure to go get seen whether or not you decide mm-hmm. to keep the child or whatever you decide to do for yourself they make it really sensitive so um it detects that you're pregnant from whatever substance is released by your body from in the urine um at a smaller rate than if you went if you went for a lab a lab yeah. would you'd have to have yeah. you almost have to have further along or more of that marker mm-hmm. whatever it is if it's hormonal i forget what it is that they're looking for you have to have a greater amount in order for the lab test to detect you so those pregnancy tests those those dollars or over-the-counter pregnancy tests are actually more sensitive, really right. reliable. So how about the rapid AIDS testing then? Um, you know, how long has that technology, if you will, been around? Oh, I, th- I don't know exactly, but it has in some form, like we're on the fourth generation. Okay. So in some form, it's been around for a good amount of time. Um, I know I've seen them, you know, anytime after 2000. I'm sure it's mm-hmm. been around since prior to that, but I can't speak to the actual history of it. Mm-hmm. The antibody antigen combination fourth generation tests are a little bit newer, mm-hmm. like the last, oh, I want to say last, like, 10 years last okay. five years even um yeah so i'm gonna stop there so we're working though i mean we're getting better at at detecting yeah yeah we have made progress over the last two dec- decades for sure in convenience way i mean you can order or assure or assure as a brand or or a quick or a quick or assure or or a quick one of those is yeah. a brand, and you can order it online for like 40 bucks. You can it's get a- tested. Basically, you can get tested at home if you feel – I think a big – the there's advancements in technology, and that's all really helpful for getting people to a place where they get treatment. Mm-hmm. But the bigger issue is like the access thing and the mm-hmm. stigma around it. So if people aren't safe or comfortable going to a clinic and even requesting it, even though it's confidential – they can get tested at home. They can have it just sent right, and it's easy to use. You can do it yourself. You can pick them up at the pharmacy. Yeah, and if you test positive, then you can move forward and decide, you know, do I want to see someone now? Um, there is so much stigma around it that a lot of people don't get treated or don't go to the doctor and even disclose their status. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that a big, I mean, regardless of the community that you're, you're working with, you know, is that one of the biggest hurdles is getting them comfortable enough to come I think, like, the recommendation in healthcare now is that everybody should be tested if they haven't been tested. So regardless of where you lie in terms of risk, if mm-hmm. you've been in a monogamous marriage your whole life and you've had one partner and no symptoms and there's no reason for you to, you know, think they still recommend that everybody be tested at least once, you can just ask your primary care provider um, for the test. It's a lab test. They can often, when they're sending you to go get blood for like a metabolic panel or something that's very common, you can stick an HIV test in that lab test very easily with the same blood sample. And everybody should do that. And that's the health carpet, health care benchmark is everybody should be tested at least once. So if you haven't been tested, go get tested. That's a great benchmark. But yeah, I do think that people, you know, it can be a sensitive topic. It shouldn't be. It's part of being a healthy person, but I mean, it it's is. it's almost in the taboo realm still. Mm-hmm. It is. It yeah. still is. Because you're discussing like a lot of other social issues like um, 
monogamy Mm -hmm. and sexuality in general like having sex for a lot of communities is taboo still and admitting to maybe having multiple partners is another thing and then when you think about the communities that are affected by hiv and aids in particular like the lgbtq community um relationships are um i guess defined differently than our hetero world let's say so um with the std testing and all of these um health concerns come these conversations about relationships and um, safety around that and defining that a little bit more. So it's it's really complicated. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the healthcare. It turns into kind of like a counseling session mm-hmm. slash a lot of social work around like getting people to feel comfortable enough to come get the healthcare and also have the resources to actually make it to the clinic to get that first testing mm. done, which is why the free clinic or a Circle K is so great because they provide it for free um, every other Saturday so people can come and get that initial workup. Uh, yeah, it's very compli- complicated. I but I mean, just say. to give you an idea of some of the things you can uncover, like say you are sitting there with a patient who you know has been you know, married for 50 years and very traditional, and you recommend an HIV test because it's a benchmark. It's recommended for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's the lowest standard that healthcare tries to achieve, no matter who you are. And so if you suggest that to somebody who's been in a monogamous relationship for 50 years, they can take offense to even the sure. suggest suggesting mm-hmm. that they get an HIV test, even though you know that it's benchmark. So you have to use a lot of tact. Or, for instance, uh, another question that I screen patients for is, like, uh, you, you ask, you know, um, you know, partners, male, female, or both is an appropriate way to ask. And then if they go on and say like, yes, I am sexually active. I'm in a relationship. Then you want to get a little bit more information and say, now, is this monogamous to the best of your knowledge? And that's like an appropriate way to ask. But even that can bring up some difficult feelings in a patient. Like it might be the first time they thought about the possibility that even though they're monogamous, like, are they truly monogamous? It just can bring up some uncomfortable feelings for people when you're talking about it. Well, do you feel like it also maybe um, brings to point that maybe we don't know everything there is to know about AIDS. Like maybe I got maybe if I have AIDS and I've been in a monogamous relationship, I got it another way. Right. You know right. I mean? Yeah. I there's, don't know how yeah. that could be, but well, there's any bodily fluid transfer. So if you biggest risks, of course, are exchange of needles. Mm-hmm. So if you're exchanging needles with somebody, drug use, intravenous drug use, that's a big risk factor. Um, you can get it from sex, but it doesn't have to just be penetrative sex. You can get it from oral sex. The idea is that you're exchanging fluids. Mm-hmm. So um, something something with DNA, but you can also the other types of transmission, um, mother to infant through. Mm-hmm. Birth, mother to infant through, um, I believe, just the pregnancy period. You can get it that way, right? Yeah, through the pregnancy period, you can get it um, as an infant during an the infant. birth process. You can get it during potentially breastfeeding. during breastfeeding. So there's like a lot of risk. Pregnancy uh, transmission, needle exchange program. Yeah, the needle exchange stuff. Um, actually, following um, sexual transmission, using needles repeatedly without having clean access to clean needles is the second most common reason why HIV is transmitted. And we have this huge drug crisis right now. So when you think about that, um, like with that healthcare perspective in mind, you think about, oh, that means that there's probably going to be a higher risk of people contracting not only HIV, but other things like hepatitis. Um, so with all of these social issues that are coming to light right now, especially in, in Ohio, uh, with heroin use being so mm-hmm. common now opiate and, and opiate use, it's 
it's definitely something that's that should be on everyone's radar. If you're using needles and um, we're all about harm reduction, like we're not going to go to someone and say like, you need to stop using drugs because it's really hard to stop. Um, it's more of a conversation about if you're using drugs, make sure you have access to clean needles mm-hmm. and There's this is where you can get them. a clean needle exchange program through Circle Health. So mm-hmm. I know that's people, I don't know exactly when they deliver them or if they deliver them or hand them out from Circle Health, but I'm sure if you call Circle Health Services and University Heights, you can get information. But, you know, volunteers go in there and package clean needles to give people access to clean needles. That's an interesting point. Like, I hadn't thought about how the opiate crisis going on now can also affect uh, their outlier risks to that. You know, not just drug addiction or overdosing, but you can transmit diseases to one another. Yeah, absolutely. If you, you know, you start with painkillers, prescription painkillers, that's a huge problem, opioids. And then a lot of times you move to something like heroin mm-hmm. or intravenous drug use because you can't get a prescription for the painkillers that gave you the addiction. So it's just an interesting... And that's a big problem in a lot of rural communities, right? It's a, that's it's where they epi- see the explosion. It's a of huge in problem in uh, the population. This is really interesting. If you look back at the like crack cocaine crisis years ago, it was a different demographic. This demographic right now for the opioid use is people with healthcare access, people who tend to not be in really impoverished. Mm-hmm. That's the communities that are, are really, mm-hmm. there's a huge opioid crisis right now in those communities and it's nationwide. Mm. Right. But in terms of like HIV and AIDS after quote unquote men who have sex with men, um, African-American women are at the highest risk of contracting HIV, which is interesting because um, the access, there's a huge gap in access for that community because if you if you look at the rhetoric around HIV education and pamphlets and flyers, they're all targeting the LGBT community. But um, behind that, there's another issue brewing and it's around like getting access to testing for, for black women. Um, so there's a lot of models where um, vans will actually go into communities and do mobile testing. So you don't have to actually come all the way to a place like Circle Health. They, they'll come to you. Mm-hmm. I, at least I've seen that in, um, in California. It's really, really common. But um, I, I think there's a organization here in Cleveland that does that. It's called um, Care Alliance. They're a community-based health center, and they have, I believe, three clinics in throughout the downtown area and they have a mobile unit that will go into areas where like the homeless community might be living or into just communities where like churches and local organizations to provide that that test so then what's the next step for somebody who gets tested uh and maybe is told uh they have HIV. If they get a confirmation, you know, they should see primary care physician and make sure that it's confirmed. Um, you know, and have a medical professional say, we've confirmed this and we know that you absolutely are HIV positive. Then the next step is getting in touch with um, medication. So antiviral therapy. And uh, I know in your, in, in Angels in America, there's uh, AZT, which is, uh, was a groundbreaking antiviral therapy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you're, the play is so wonderful because it brings up issues of access because one of one of the characters in the play has more access to this AZT trial drug mm-hmm. because of their affluence. Mm-hmm. That still mm-hmm. goes on today. So you have to be able to mm-hmm. pay for these antiviral drugs. Um, the U.S. in general, it are, you know, most people can there is a route for them to get access to this through through Medicaid or Medicare. Um, 
So, you know, really for us in the United States, the issue is educating people about the resources that are available. In sub-Saharan Africa, where they have two-thirds of the of the HIV AIDS epidemic exists in sub-Saharan Africa, the issue is that they just don't, there isn't, there aren't resources there. So that's, you know, where 60% of 37 million AIDS cases exist in sub-Saharan Africa. So anyway, but here in the United States, it, it, you know, it'd be making sure that you have insurance and then get a, getting a prescription for these antiviral drugs. And I do think that you, I don't know exactly what the treatment plan is. There's many antivirals out there. And I think that you find the idea is to get your viral load really low. So mm -hmm. sometimes you hit them with combinations that work on different parts of the virus. Mm -hmm. And, um, Anyway, that helps yeah, with... Just stopping it from replicating to a point where it starts to show up in your bodily fluids at an amount that's transmittable to mm. other people. So the person, if someone's HIV positive and confirmed and going through treatment, um, there are different ways that they can take that treatment. It could be a pill form. It could be like... I believe there's a, a vaginal ring too that will release the, um, mm. the antiretroviral drug. Um, so the person that's testing positive will take that medication. And if they have partners that they are having uh, sexual intercourse with or engaging in other exchanges of bodily fluids, they should also be on some type of medication to prevent the transmission as well. So it's really important to talk to your your doctor about um, your partners and um, disclosing to them, having that conversation and getting everyone kind of involved so it's kind of like a team effort. So if you're at high risk, are you saying then if you're in a high risk population that it might be wise to go on the antiviral even if you're not actually Yes, it's infected? called it's actually called PrEP, which is um, pre-prophylactic. Uh, it's like prophylactic therapy. So if you're mm -hmm. on an antiviral, um, PrEP is actually as effective percentage-wise as wearing a condom. It's mm. to, in preventing receiving oh. HIV, transmission of wow. HIV. So you can go on PrEP, um, which is a prophylactic treatment, and it's designed to be used with condoms. So it's like a, a backup plan if mm. there's any issues with the integrity of the condom or something like that. Um but you can use it in many different circumstances. So, of course, you could use it if you're in a relationship with somebody who's positive and you are not positive. You can use prophylactic therapy um, medication in order to protect yourself. I think it's also important to point out that um, if you are undetectable, so if you, if you are HIV positive, but your antiviral therapy is working so well that you can't, you no longer test positive, you still mm -hmm. have HIV, but your viral load is so low that you actually... You actually can't transmit at that time. Mm. So that's another important oh, wow. fact to put out mm -hmm. there for everybody. So will it still kill you? Um, no. In theory, I mean, it may you're later just, on, you're, you're like, may progress, but HIV doesn't kill you because it, 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 HIV is what you, is just the virus it's, itself. Sure. You die from AIDS, which is the progression of the virus to a point in your body where the viral load is so large that it is, uh, I forget what the AIDS stands for. It's like autoimmune deficiency, deficiency syndrome. Yeah. So your body can no longer um, fight infections. So you start to see that show up in various different ways from like having bacteria growing in your mouth to having skin lesions show mm -hmm. up all over your body. So basically you're you're not able to fight diseases so if sure. you get pneumonia or you get the flu 
and you're at that stage of having AIDS, you're at really high risk of, ha- of having further complications and being in the hospital. So mm-hmm. what what we want to do is prevent people from getting to that stage, which is what was happening in the 80s. People mm-hmm. were coming in with AIDS and having all of these symptoms and basically their bodies were breaking down and shutting down on them. So we're able to stop it at its HIV phase before it skips into the AIDS phase. We're yeah, very so, successful. So you were talking a little bit to the talk back and I found that interesting about what are the different phases or stages? You said full-blown AIDS is stage um, There are stages four, and I don't know exactly what they are, but there are stages to the progression of the virus. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're viral, I think it's decided by viral load, decided mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. symptomology. So in theory, you know, you can stay um, uh, I, like an undetectable status on treatment indefinitely. You can live into your 70s. Wow. And, you know, some of those drugs can be hard on your liver and kidneys. Your liver metabolizes, kidneys filter, mm-hmm. and some of them can be harder on that. So you might have some negative consequences from the treatment, um, but in theory, you may never make it to full-blown um, AIDS. You know, you might die of natural causes on Mm -hmm. antiviral therapy. So, but yes, there are stages and uh, a great resource if you want to read about the stages would be like the CDC Mm -hmm. or even World Health Organization who Mm -hmm. you can find more information about the progression from HIV to AIDS. I have one follow-up about, we were talking about access Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the, the ACA, Obamacare, has that increased access to, to these kind of retroviral treatments, or is it still is there still a barrier there? I think that it did provide a lot of Americans without health care coverage with health care coverage. So there was mm-hmm. a chunk of, un, of uninsured, um, impoverished Americans that got insurance through Obamacare. But at the same time that, that you can get Medicare and Medicaid through Obamacare, you also can change legislation on whether or not Medicare and Medicaid cover certain drugs. Mm-hmm. So that is something that can be altered, not necessarily. And I don't know enough about the Obamacare package to mm-hmm. say whether or not that was mandated in mm-hmm. there. But I know that um, that you can get antiviral therapy um covered by medicaid i know that that's possible in certain states i don't i can't speak to every single state Mm -hmm. um but i i also can't say for certain that it is within the obamacare legislation Mm -hmm. um or is guaranteed you know indefinitely but right now you can and you can also get prep covered um by medicaid as well so before that was it considered a pre-existing condition like was it hard for people to get i guess my question is was it hard for them to get health care if they were if they were hiv positive i think there were route there were movements and routes to provide people with access Mm -hmm. but i do think that there were many scenarios before obamacare where you could find yourself unable to pay for your medication and i still think that that occurs today Mm -hmm. i think that it's a very complex system and there are still circumstances where you may not qualify through Medicare and Medicaid. I don't understand all of the legislation around healthcare. It, you know, it runs at a federal level, at a state level, mm-hmm. um, and you know we're we're tweaking it now um, with this new administration. So, um, but yeah, I do think probably more often that that very bottom rung of society that that mm-hmm. you know now qualifies for Medicaid because of the expansion. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they probably had a lot 
more difficulty finding access. So if somebody does come in and let's say they can't pay for their medication, what happens? If they can't pay for it? Yeah, if they can't pay for it. There are many routes. So I would say we would set you up with social worker. Mm -hmm. And those are really our our go-tos. They they understand how to get access to things for specific populations. So those are experts. If there's a problem with payment, you go to your social worker in your hospital or a social worker on your team and um, and they will let you know what are what are some organizations that might pay for these medications. How can we get you is there any way we can get you meds fast and then mm-hmm. you know work on a long-term solution. So mm-hmm. but I you know I think it's easier right now um, with Obama, you know Obamacare but I don't know that every solution is is accounted for. To to answer your question in a more I guess media perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that we need more credible sources of media out there that are giving us information. We're getting information from so many different sources, and there, but there aren't enough uh, sources that are credible. And often now, I think what's happening with the fake news, you know, epi- I'm going to call it an epidemic because really, it's like the main source of media that we have is giving information that is not accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of journalists are having to kind of create their own avenues to provide information to people, but those avenues aren't given enough space or exposure in the general public. So mm-hmm. there's an issue with how we're consuming our media, but how it's being given to us. So it, it could be, this could be a really um, in-depth conversation sure. because the U.S. controls the access to media that we have, the things that we watch like mm-hmm. other countries do. Um, I recently traveled outside um, the U.S. and was able to see different perspectives on, I'm not going to say his name, but different perspectives <laughs> on the person that's sitting at the big desk on top of Capitol Hill right now. He's um, not there. He's golfing. Oh, yeah, he's, not, <laughs> he's probably not there. Yeah, let's be real. Um, just hearing different perspectives from people outside of the U.S., the way that they consume media and the things that they've seen about um, what's happening here, it's interesting. There's a lot of control on what we see here, especially mm-hmm. now. They're trying to create new regulations on monitoring our Internet use and our access to things on TV. So it's another issue. Like, who, who's giving us this information? How can you trust them? But in terms of healthcare, there's a uh, inherently a lot of trust in healthcare providers, which is great. Mm-hmm. So it gives us an opportunity to be giving someone information in a way that they can digest, and also telling them that it's for their empowerment, so that they can make an informed decision about their healthcare rather than us telling them what they need to mm-hmm. do. So yes, yeah, it's, it's complicated. There's like this huge issue of how people get information, and then there's this like healthcare crisis and they're not really communicating well yeah i mean it feels like what justin is saying what you're saying is there's a lot of stigma and bias involved with especially when you're and going back to what we said earlier or what i said maybe uh when you're trying to talk somebody into going into a clinic where they've never been in before and say i need an aids test right i mean everything i mean there's a lot of layers there I i mean i remember back when in my younger days when i was you know not married and saying, okay, I'll go get the AIDS test thing. And, you know, that's a hard thing to be, ah, I need, I don't know, what do I, I'm just here to get my knee checked out. What do I, how does this Well, well since you're drawing blood for my Right, if you're just, finger, I don't know, like, does, I mean, are you just, testing for everything? I'll just send you like a checkbox sheet. I can check Can I just fill this yeah, out? Yeah, and... I mean, I don't have it, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, but I think. I don't know. I, I, hopefully, it feels like maybe we've made 
not enough, we'll never make enough progress, but there's enough progress from even in the time when I was, you know, 15, 20 years ago or whatever to now to maybe we're starting maybe even the awareness, like you said, and what you're bringing up, the awareness that everything is crazy and the information we're getting is coming from unreliable sources most of the time. Uh, that might, the effect of that might be, oh, okay, now I can start needling through and, and deciding where I'm getting my information. And maybe it's a time for me to look at my biases and the stigmas that are attached uh, within my own culture. And maybe that's, will provide the steps we need, hopefully. No, I think that, that you're already seeing that with people. I think people are already getting smart. And I do think it's just been a little bit. We've only been in the information age for a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. And this is all new for us. And, you know, there's a lot of awareness that was created by what happened in our election, you know, with, you know, some of these news articles coming from outside sources, mm-hmm. other countries, um, misinformation coming from them. So I think people are definitely getting the hang of it, you know, and, and, you know, people who have the hang of it can work with those in their lives who don't have the hang of it. I know, for instance, my mother doesn't have the hang of it. <laughs> and, uh, and we have to, both my sister and I are like, look who wrote that article. Read about, like, or look at, did you read the article? You just shared the article. You didn't read the article. Like, this was really not written by somebody you want to associate with. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, she often is like, oh. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you're not reading things. Don't click that share button. You're not even reading it like you know so we're working with some of those people in our lives who are you know you know and i know that playing catch up playing catch up and i'm sure i'm playing catch up and i'm sure my nieces will be helping me you know that's Mm. the way that we move forward is i'm sure the next generation is going to be a lot more on top of this than i am even and uh so on and so forth so so what can we then as community as community members um you know what can we be aware of or how can we help bring awareness maybe to like the work that you're doing in the LGBT community uh, and also with the women's um, clinics and you with the uh, with the circle health clinic you know what what sort of avenues are there for your average person on the street your average Tyler I'd say looking up your representatives (laughs) your political representatives in your area and trying to find ways and it is confusing to research and I'm not on top of things but looking for legislation that might be up for passing like for instance you know net neutrality it's a weird thing to talk about but there have been there's been some changes to net neutrality recently and that's something that you know there are opportunities to call your representative and talk about and like we just pointed out here that's actually weird related to getting information which is weirdly related to like healthcare and other issues Mm -hmm. so like things are all connected so just kind of trying to look at um, healthcare access and what bills there are bills constantly going up at the local level the state level and the federal level that affect healthcare and so kind of trying to not I don't think everybody can get a handle on everything right we all have a little bit of time mm-hmm. but trying to look for something and then sending you know a message to your um you know your representative is a great place to start and you can think about healthcare access women's rights and mm-hmm. you know political issues that involve lgbtq those are places to think about but just in general i think you know there are passion projects that are near and dear to all of us and we don't all have to be doing the same thing, but one thing we can be doing is trying to include that into our lives. Like, I'm going to look up some of the bills that are coming up 
maybe at this level and just send. And now you can just used to be you had to call during business hours and talk to a live person, but now you can leave a voicemail mm-hmm. or even sign a petition, and just send an email. Mm-hmm. And so there are things that you can do on that level. And then of course there are there are other ways to get really involved and to like go to these city council meetings and 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 try to really be present in those mm-hmm. ways. So, and to add to that. Um, Another really important way that I think people with access can um, help communities that don't have access, share your resources. Um, If you are in a place of more privilege than someone that doesn't have access to health care or doesn't have health insurance, doesn't know that they can get Medicare or Medicaid, um, donate to organizations that are doing this type of work and going out into those communities. You'd be surprised. the lack of funding that that these kinds of organizations receive from government, from the government, especially now with the administration and how they're cutting resources. Um, The clinic that I work at, they are self-sufficient. They run off of donations, actually. They don't get a lot of federal funding because of the work that they do. It's not supported, especially in Ohio. So that those kinds of places are places where a lot of LGBT folks come, a lot of African-American women are coming in and we're offering HIV screening. So things like that, look into your local organizations that are doing this kind of work and see where you want to put your resources in and also ask them where the, where the money is going. So you're more involved in knowing like the impact that your finances are making for other people. Nice. One, 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 one more follow-up. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things we also like to talk about is, you know, we talk about with actors a lot. We talk about with directors and writers is what their passion is. Why have they gone down this path, right? Because it, it seems like each, whatever we choose to do in our lives, whatever our callings are, or whatever our, our chosen professions, there's, there's always a cost to us, right? So the reason that we do it has to be meaningful. So why, why have you guys chosen to do nursing? What is it that you know, a little bit of background, like what makes that that your choice? Why did you decide to do that with your lives? Well, I... That's a hard question. <laughs> it is a hard question. Yeah, of course it is. I'm just here for laughs. <laughs> I mean, I, oddly enough, have done a ton of performance in my life, musical theater, mm-hmm. improv, uh, little tiny amateur films, and I love that. And that takes me to a really wonderful sort of euphoric place. But some other things I get from that, it makes me really competitive for some reason. And sometimes it can make my ego a little imbalanced. And I've noticed (laughs) that, that it takes me to some, not only does it make me euphoric and joyful, but it can make me really competitive during the audition process. And And when I'm performing, sometimes I get a little out of touch with reality and other people and my comparison. And so nursing... So you're an actor. You mean. So I'm an actor. I'm an actor. Just say actor. I'm an actor. But then nursing comes along with, you know, stressors as well. But one thing that I love, love, love about this and, you know, in varying, various different levels, but... For instance, like the ICU or even hospice, working with a patient at that stage in their life where they're critical, everything you do for them, the smallest thing is very meaningful Mm -hmm. for those people. And it gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me a sense of gratitude for the rest of my life. And it really brings me in, in, I think, down to earth. So it kind of has the opposite effect. So I love both of them, Mm -hmm. you know, and nursing doesn't always make me as euphoric as acting does, Mm -hmm. but it, it, it does give me a really great sense of purpose and a sense of accomplishment and um and yeah a weird sense of meaning that I don't I can't always find in the other areas of my life so I think I do all of them but that's a big Mm -hmm. thing for me is 
is having both of them in my life, having this serving others in my life is um, kind of like the other piece of the pie. It's like together it creates a whole for me, which is like being mentally healthy. Mm-hmm. And like one of them by themselves, and this is true if I cut acting out, is can be miserable. <laughs> so I like need <laughs> both of them. Sure, sure, sure. Um, for me, on the on the flip side, I think it's a really different um, reason for why I came into the field. I've been living on Earth my entire life, like I haven't been <laughs> floating up anywhere with my. I don't. I I just have been brought up in a way that. I see people like me and people that have shared identities as me not getting the the quality and the access to not just healthcare, a lot of different things in this world um, that they should be getting. And so kind of navigating my life with that awareness, um, I was angry for, and I still am angry about it. I think it's a, it's not fair. It's a big issue and it needs to be addressed and people need to hear about it. I think that something that I also noticed was that there aren't a lot of people from the communities that are impacted in positions to make change. So I thought, well, one way for me to get to that place is to put myself in a position to give other people uh, a sense of empowerment, a voice, access to information and healthcare. So yes, I want to be in nursing and I would like to serve as a nurse, but outside of that, the reason why I'm in this field is to like be an advocate for the community and specifically for, for people of color, for people that are queer, for people that feel like they don't have a space in the world, creating a space for them and kind of putting that language out there, putting that verbiage out into the world. So people that know that we exist and that we deserve healthcare and we deserve access to other different rights that are not given to us in the U S. So I'm on the ground. I'm staying on the ground. <laughs> I'm not even trying to work in a hospital. I'm more focused on working like in the community um, so that people don't go to the hospital. So. Cool. Great. Thank wow. you. Well, thank you very much, guys. Yeah. We appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back for Angels Part 2. All right. Yeah, this is definitely the smartest podcast this we've is... ever had. <laughs> I, <can't remember. laughs> I should probably hit record soon. <laughs> Funny note. We just did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there you have it. That was uh, this episode of the Cleveland Stage Podcast. Uh, again, if you are listening to us on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms, please rate the show uh, and help promote us on Facebook or any Twitter or whatever your social media is. You can find us on Facebook. And also, we'd like to say for those of you out in Michigan, in Grand Rapids, and Muskegon, we'd like to thank Discount Home Improvement. Part of our co-media sponsors here at Ensemble Theater. That's right. Um, you know, it's your money. Why not save it? <laughs> and you can visit them at discountmi.com. So, again, I'm your co-host, Tyler Whitten, along with my co-host. Ian Hens. And don't forget to check EnsembleTheaterClee.org. Or you can just go to TheaterClee.org. And that will take you to the same spot. And check our events. The event, the special events are surrounding this uh, this Angels in America uh, Fantasia that we're putting on here mm-hmm. over the next couple of months. It's started, feels like months ago, but it's still going on. It'll go all the <laughs> it's way. It's going on. It's going fast. Yeah, it'll go all the way through the through the closing of uh, Angels Part Two, which mm-hmm. I like to call Angels Part Two: The Revenge of the <laughs> Angels. But that's not right. So. But that uh, that opens in April twenty seventh. April twenty seventh. We have, of course, Jelly Belly opening Friday, February 9th. 
directed mm-hmm. by Ian Wolfgang Hins. That's right. Followed by Mama Moon and our uh, New Plays Festival. This is our right. eighth annual Columbia wow. New Play Festival. So lots going on, and make sure you just check the website for that. And thank you guys for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this uh, this episode. I know I really did. And thanks, Tyler, for putting it together and organizing it. My pleasure as always. So, Don't forget, Ian. All the world's a stage, Tyler. Ugh. It's forever and ever. <laughs>